Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is a prayer for help when discouraged. Now, this psalm starts out as a psalm of mourning. The psalmist is grieving. But the strange thing is, this psalm never turns or doesn't end in trust and praise, which is kind of the trademark of those psalms that are psalms of mourning. So this psalm can be considered a psalm of complaint that develops from the the grieving part of the psalm's, you know, mourning. The theme is when there's no relief in sight, God understands even our deepest misery. The author, the title says, is a psalm of the sons of Korah, but is specifically, you know, credited to Heman, the Ezraite. Now, Heman is found in 1 Kings 4.31, and he's found to be a gifted wise man. Uh, and in First uh, Chronicles 15.16-19, he's found as one of the musically gifted Levites who ministered in worship during the time of David. And the term Ezraite may mean native-born. The name of the song possibly means a dance of affliction. And the make of the psalm goes up like goes like this. First, it opens with a prayer for deliverance in verses 1 and 2. Second, Heman's approaching death in verses 3 through 5. And then third, a complaint about the Lord's attack on Heman in verses 6 through 8. Fourth, God's delay in coming to Heman for help, uh, to Heman's help in verses 9 through 12. And fifth, Heman's desperation because he senses no deliverance from the Lord, verses 13 through 18. This psalm has been called the dark night of the soul. And it's a saying that's not used a lot in our time anymore. But it was in the Middle Ages, where it was found in the writings of European mystics. So what is the dark night of the soul? Well, it's when you're in a state of really intense spiritual suffering. Where the believer who's struggling and feeling hopeless feels like he's been abandoned by God. Like God's nowhere inside or nowhere around. And this is what Psalm 88 describes here by Heman. It's not like the other Psalms, like I said, where the writers complain about their, their horrible circumstances and then they weep for their misery. Now in the other Psalms, though they all seem to look you know, like they're going to come to some solution, you know, and maturing faith or hope by the end of the psalm. This isn't the case with this psalm. This psalm starts with God, but it ends, when you look at the very last word, it ends with darkness. It starts with God, but it ends, you know, with, with only darkness remaining or darkness being my closest friend. You know, it doesn't look like there's any hope anywhere. This psalm has been called the gloomiest psalm in the Bible. And that's because the psalmist is still just as deeply in trouble when he started his prayer in verse 1 as he is when he's finished. It is a cry of sorrow from start to finish. It's the only psalm where the psalmist pours out his feelings from his heart to God, but it doesn't bring him any comfort. It's a desperate cry of suffering. But he's not made to feel any better because he doesn't see any comfort or hope. So you see, there's a good reason to believe that the psalmist also may have been a leper. Because he seems to have have had some devastating disease that he had since he was a child. And And if that's the case, 
That's why he doesn't have any friends. Because if you were a leper in those days, nobody could come around you. It was very contagious and there was no cure. And again, it was such a horrible disease, depending on how badly you had it, that people couldn't stand the sight of you. So if that's the case, Heman doesn't have any friends. If he's a leper, they couldn't stand the sight of him anymore, and he's about to die. So he doesn't say anything about or complain about any attacks by enemies. He, has no, he, he, he doesn't confess to any sins in his life, yet he looks at his long, ongoing experience of suffering, he says, as being due in part to the Lord's wrath. You know, he, in part, he feels like this is due to, what, you know, to the Lord's anger. So it's the Lord that, that Heman is praying to. But you see, this is what makes it the saddest of the Psalms. Because when the psalm is finished, there's still no answer nor any lessening of the psalmist's problem. And as I said already, the last word in the psalm is darkness. So, you know, as strange as, it, as this may sound, you know, it's good that we have a psalm like this. But I'm glad there's only one. Because it's a reminder to us that life is filled with trouble. And I'm sure I don't have to tell you that. And life can be filled even to the point of despair, even for mature Christians. You know, we have no guarantee that life is going to be sweet and wonderful just because we're Christians. The psalm reminds us that life doesn't always work out the way we want it to. And that it always doesn't work out right in the end. That there has to always be a, but there's always a clear, you know, moral lesson to us in the psalm. And this psalm reminds us that life isn't always like that. We read by, uh, from Job in Job 5.7, People are born for trouble as readily as sparks fly up from a fire. And if you've ever been near a campfire or a bonfire, there are constantly sparks rising up in the air. And Job says, hey man, man has, as many, you know, has problems just like they, you see the sparks rise up from a fire. He also said in Job 14.1, how frail is humanity, how short life is, how full of trouble. Chuck Colson, if you remember Chuck Colson, if you're old enough, you may. Uh, but Chuck Colson served as a special counsel to President Nixon. And uh, some of President Nixon's problems for you know, stepping down was because some of the plans that um, Chuck Colson came up with in his presidency. But in prison, Chuck Colson became a Christian and a right-on Christian and a great author. Listen to what he said about life. He said, life isn't like a book. Life isn't logical or sensible or orderly. Life is a mess most of the time, and theology must be lived in the midst of that mess. And he's so right on. And you know what? It's only God who can make sense out of the senseless. There may be a perfectly good lesson from God's point of view here in this psalm. And I think that all life does have a divine purpose because we read this morning that that we were created for God. We were created for his good pleasure. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we can see what God has planned for us or that we'll ever see, you know, why and what things happened in our life. We'll never see that in our lifetime, possibly. This psalm is here to remind us that life doesn't always have a happy ending. And whoever believes the idea that everything turns out okay because I'm a Christian would have a real tough time explaining this psalm compared to all the rest of them. So let's begin now with Psalm 88, verse 1. 
And the psalmist begins, O Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. Just the slightest little bit of hope we find in this psalm is in the words, God of my salvation. Think if Heman wasn't a believer and what he was going through. He would have no hope. You know, like I said, even as Christians, sometimes we can get to that place where we feel God has abandoned us and there's no hope. But here's the, 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 the single ray of hope here where he says, God of my salvation, my deliverer and redeemer. David, the psalmist, the psalmist said in Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The writer has salvation and he's sure of that. And God is the only one who can give it to him. As long as we can see God as our savior, hey, it's not all dark with us. As long as the living God can be spoken of as the life of our salvation and our hope, it won't run out. It's one of the characteristics of true faith that it turns to Jehovah God. When we're at the bottom, at the, at, you know, as low as we can get, one of the characteristics of true faith is that we will turn to Jehovah God, the living and saving God, when all of the things that we have confidence in have turned out to be of no help. Now, this is not to be taken lightly because nobody knows, uh, nobody, no person who knows that God is his Savior can ever totally despair. Now, think about that. You know, I, I you know, taught a, a message one time and asked the question, is there such a thing as a tragedy for a Christian? And the answer is no. Because God is in control of all things. And God knows what's going to happen in our life. And God has a purpose greater than we can know. And so if God is in control and and he does nothing randomly and and nothing gets by him, uh, it may be an unpleasant experience. Yes, it might be hurtful and painful, but it's not a tragedy for a Christian. How can there be? How can there be a, a tragedy when God is infinitely wise and he can't make mistakes? How can there be a tragedy when he's too loving to be unkind? And how can there be a tragedy when he's too powerful for anybody to spoil his plans? So so after the psalmist speaks to God, he moves right away to the fact that he's been trying, he's been crying to God, Lord, I've been crying to you day and night. The psalmist has been feeding on his tears. He's been persevering in prayer and he finds out pretty quick that it seems like there's no answer from God. He's also been crying out to the Lord for a very long time. Notice verse 15, it says, most likely since he was a little kid. Notice verse 15, it says, I have been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. He's been crying out, possibly since he was a kid, but God hasn't done anything yet. God hasn't taken away he hasn't healed him or taken away whatever affliction that he had that was causing him such te- terrible suffering. And then men are so good at adding insult to injury. You know, when we're going through difficult times, they always or many times ask the question, well, where's your God? You're so high on your God and you're always talking about God of this and God and he can do anything. Where is he? But you see, we have to remember How Jesus insisted that in spite of when it seems like God doesn't care, God actually does hear our prayer and he will act quickly. 
Jesus made this point in the story of the persistent widow and the unjust judge, remember, who decided that even though he didn't care for justice, he was going to see that the widow got justice just so that she would stop pestering him with her coming. And Jesus said, he said, And shall not God avenge his own elect who cry day out, day, who cry out day and night to him? Though he bears long with them, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. But you see, here's our problem. You say, well, he says he'll answer us speedily. And he answers our, 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 our prayers quickly. Our problem is that God's timing is so much different from ours. And we learned that this morning in the deity of Christ and speaking about eternity. God doesn't live in our time frame. God is eternal. He's been eternal for, for eternity. No beginning, no end. We're the ones who live by time. That's what makes waiting upon God so difficult sometimes. Verse 2. The psalmist goes on and says, Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. So the psalmist here directed his prayer to God. He's, 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 he's praying to God. So he expected and wanted an answer. He didn't want men to hear his prayers. He said, Lord, incline your ear to my cry. I want you to listen, Lord. I'm coming to you with my prayer. And so give whatever answer pleases you. To my prayer. Verses 3 through 5. He says, For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength, adrift among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and who are cut off from your hand. Notice how such a despair that he, you can hear in his voice. The psalm gets even darker now as it moves along. And what the psalmist seems to be facing now is the shadow of death. He's on the verge of dying. First, he says, notice in verse 3, my soul is full of troubles. Then he says in verse 3, his life draws near to the grave. He's dying. Next, he says in verse 4, I'm counted with those that go down to the pit that is among the dead. And then in verse 4, he says, I'm like a man that has no strength. And then he finishes, notice with verse 5, Adrift among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and who are cut off from, from your hand. In verse 5, the psalmist sees himself almost being laid out in the mortuary. And that God's not going to remember him anymore. Man, this is a real faith killer. Because the Jews lacked faith in life after death. They spoke of the grave as being the end of all things. That's it. Just over and done. You know, where the dead are nothing and where there's no more to be said. That's the way the Jews looked at it. The scripture makes this clear in Psalm 89, 47, when it says, Remember how short my time is, for what futility have you created all the children of men? Psalm 49.10, For he sees wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless person perish. Their feeling is that once a man dies, he doesn't worship God anymore. Psalm 30 verse 9 says, Will the dust praise you? Psalm 6.5 says, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave who will give you thanks? Look at now at the last verse 12. As the psalmist says there, I'm sorry, verse 12 says, Shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? You see, this is how the psalmist speaks probably because of his affliction. 
You know, and a lot of times when we are in, dis- in deep despair and a lot of pain and suffering, we really say dumb things when we're depressed. But we can't think like this because we know of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we know his promises about heaven. Now, this isn't the only view of death that's found in, in the Old Testament or in the Psalms. David looked at death and said this in Psalm 23, 4 and 6. He says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, know this, though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't fear evil because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God has never left his people totally without hope. Even though hope, that hope wasn't as bright in the Old Testament as it can be seen today. But God tests our faith. But you know what? He doesn't leave it without a sure foundation in his word. And verse 6 here takes us even further down into this hole that the psalmist is in. This bottomless pit it seems to be. What makes this darkness so dark and these verses so depressing is that here God is thought of being the one as causing all of his problems. Kind of like Job. Look at verses 6 through 9a now. You have laid me in the lowest pit. Notice how many times he says you, speaking of God. You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness and in the depths. Your wrath, God, lies heavy upon me. And you, God, have afflicted me with all of your waves. You, God, have put away my acquaintances far from me. You, God, have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up and cannot get out. My eyes waste away because of affliction. So in verse 1, he called God the God of my salvation. In verses 3 through 5, he described his actual present condition. He says, Lord, my soul is full of troubles right now. But here in verses 6 through 9a, he says the opposite of what he said in verse 1. You, God, are the cause of my misery. Notice how he complains over and over about God's actions. Again, let's read verses 6 through 8. And again, you, God, have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the depths. Your wrath, God, lies heavy upon me. And you, God, have afflicted me with all of your waves. And you, God, have put away my acquaintances far from me. You, God, have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up and I cannot get out. He does almost the same thing in verse 16. Drop down to verse 16. Notice what he says. Your fierce God, your fierce wrath, God, has gone over me. Your terrors, God, have cut me off. He, so again, he's just, he sounds like Job. Now, Job was a godly man, and he had a, a, a God had blessed him with a large family and, and many possessions. And then all of a sudden, they were all taken from him. And Job's life became so miserable that he cursed the day that he was born. And he looked death in the face and he was prepared to perish miserably. He said, I just want to die. Take me out, God. It sounds a lot like the psalmist here. And the common thing between these two men, Heman and Job, is that God you know, had caused Job suffering. If not directly, at least by allowing Satan to afflict Job. But Job could not imagine why. And this is one of our, another one of our biggest difficulties is why God? Why? And, that, and this is what the psalmist is saying too. Why God? There's like, so much alike here, including even some of the things that they say. 
As a matter of fact, one commentator even suggests that Job and Heman, the Ezraite, might even be the same person. But we know that from start to finish, God had a purpose for Job's suffering. And you know what? He still has a, a, a purpose for our suffering today. Job, the purpose for Job's suffering was to show Satan, the demons, and the angels watching that a man will serve and can serve God just because he loves him. Even though God may not bless him with material things. But the point of Job is that this great patriarch, Job, didn't know know himself. He didn't know what was going on. And it seems like the psalmist here doesn't either. But both works are found in Scripture to remind us, you know, what happened with Job and what happened even here. Both of these passages are here to remind us that we don't necessarily know what God is doing by our suffering as well. Now look at the second part of verse 9, nice B through 12. When its waves, verse 9, you rule the raging, you rule the raging, raging sea when it waves when its waves rise, you still them. You have broken Rahab in pieces. I'm in Psalm 89. Excuse me. Let me go back to verse 9a. It didn't sound familiar. <laughs> verse 9a, okay. Uh, Lord, I have called daily upon you. I have stretched out my hands to you. Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave or your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Verse 10 seems to deny the resurrection. And then verses 11 through 12 here seem to say that the dead aren't even awake or conscious enough to remember God, which isn't true. Thank God. But what's said in these verses is from an earthly perspective. Again, without the help of any special word about there being life after death, which the psalmist doesn't have. He didn't have a special word about life after death. It's among the living that he performs his miracles and his praises are sung and his faithfulness and acts of deliverance are demonstrated among the, among the living. Death does not care about the glory of God. This is what he's thinking. This is what he's saying. Its whole character, death's whole character is negative in the eyes of the psalmist. It's the last word in activity. In other words, death is the last thing I do. It's silence. Death is cutting off of relationships. It's decay. It's gloom. It's oblivion. And the New Testament agrees, calling it the last great enemy. There's nothing to be gained by denying this. But you see, it's not the whole truth either. We know a lot more about death now and afterlife because of what the New Testament tells us. But it's at least part of the truth, so it has a proper place in the Word of God. Verses 13 through 14. But to you I have cried, uh, cried, out, cried out, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes to you. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? Not only are the dead silent, Clearly because they can't rise up and make God's wonders known. God is also silent toward them as far as the psalmist knows. One reason why he feels so close to death is that God isn't talking to him right now. He tries talking to God through prayer. He's praying, but God seems to be silent. God seems to reject him, and and he feels that God is hiding his face from him. 
And you know, we've probably all felt times like that. Most of us have times when when the heavens just seem to, to be closed for business. And at the prayers that we send up to God, they hit the ceiling and fall back down and hit the floor with no answer. And when that happens, it's no wonder that we feel dead or almost dead, spiritually speaking. If a man, if a man as Jesus said, does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, then it's no wonder that we feel like we're dead when God isn't speaking to us. Verses 15 through 18. The psalmist goes on and says, I have been afflicted and ready to die, notice, from my youth. I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They came around me all day long like water. They engulfed me altogether. Loved one and friend, notice, you have put far from me. And my acquaintances in the darkness. Notice, friends and acquaintances, they've they've gone far away from him. So at this point, you know, in the psalm, it's coming to the end. At this point, we're normally expecting the psalmist to turn to, to confidence and trust and praising God. But he doesn't. Normally expecting the one who's praying to say something positive, like, Lord, in spite of all of this, I know you hear me, Lord. I know your answer is close, so I rejoice in you. But it ain't happening here. Instead of God saying something, promising here to, to, to Heman, and, and, upli- and saying uplifting things to him, it just seems to go from bad to worse. From hopelessness to even darker hopelessness. The situation grows even darker than before for him. It's as if the psalmist is looking all around him and all he sees is misery, despair, death, terror and lowliness. No light whatsoever, no ray of hope whatsoever. Like David. David could look back and see what God had done from him in the past. And that would bring him some hope for the future. You know, we've been taught to look at the past, look at the history of God in our life, and look what he's done for us, because that is a great, a great confidence builder in what he'll do for us in the future. But the psalmist here doesn't see that. He can't look back and see what God has done for him in the past. So he has this sense that, that there's nothing that God's going to do for him at all. But the psalmist here has been afflicted, notice in verse 15, since he was a young boy. And since he was a young boy, he hasn't gotten any help. He hasn't seen better days. Nor does he sense there's going to be better days ahead. So you see, he has nothing to look forward to in that sense. You know, he looks back, he says, Man, I have been in this shape ever since I was a little boy. God has done nothing to help me. This is his thinking. This is, this is what he's basing his, his feelings on right now. So again, he can't look back to brighter days to cheer him up. He can't look to the future because all he can see at the moment is death. And it's made worse by the fact that what he's going through at the moment is the terror and the wrath of God, as he mentions in 15 and 16. So he has every reason to think that those things are going to continue on. And how many times do we say, I guess this is the way it's just going to be for the rest of my life? Well, it could be, but not necessarily. 
And because this is what he's feeling, this, that, that what he's going through is going to continue forever, this has thrown him into the very pit of hopelessness. Listen to his last words as he looks at what's going on in his life at the moment, because they don't get any better. And it's the worst description yet. His situation at the moment leads him to an empty hopelessness. Notice he sees himself as having been destroyed. Verse 16, cut off. And I've been cut off by God. He says, I've been overcome by God's terror in verse 17. I've been cut off from my friends and my loved ones. Notice that God has taken from me. And without God, to be all by himself in the darkness. Verse 18. So he is really down and out. And again, the psalm ends with the word darkness. As if all was lost. Heman's last words may have been darkness, but you know what? It doesn't have to be the last word for us. If we don't repent of sin and come to God through faith in the atoning death of Jesus Christ, the darkness of death, hell, and judgment is all that we have to look forward to. All we have to look forward to is the thud of the dirt hitting our coffin. Jesus described hell as a place of outer darkness in Matthew 25, 30. But on the other hand, if we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, not only is the future changed from darkness to brightness and from life to death, but the past is changed too. In other words, it doesn't need to trouble us anymore. And the present also is going to be changed as well. So what then is the role of this particular psalm in the Bible? Well, for starters, it teaches us something really important. It's not something that I think we want to hear, but we need to know. That there is the possibility of Christians experiencing continuous suffering all of their life as a part of their lot in life. As part of God's mysterious will for their life. Remember the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7.14. He said, enjoy prosperity while you can. But when hard times strike, he says, realize that both come from God. And he says, remember that nothing is certain in this life. Nothing is certain in this life. And God is not a debtor to any man. He does not owe you and I a single thing. Nothing. So in closing, remember that the good or happy ending in most psalms, hey, it's a benefit to us. But again, it's never owed to us. God does not owe us a happy ending. God doesn't owe us a thing. Even after we become Christians, and we should know better, most Christians still feel that God owes them a happy or easy life. And I've heard it over the years. You know, I'm going to church and I'm serving and I'm tithing and, you know, and I'm reading the Bible and I'm praying and, 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 it's, and you know, and, and this still happens to me. I'm still going through this. Well, you know, it, it, nowhere in the scripture does it say because we do what we're supposed to do, are we not going to have any trials or tribulations or afflictions? Like I said, God doesn't owe us anything. You know, we're not owed anything. The good and the bad both come from God. So, if he withholds such a life, 
a, a happy life to, to, to some or to, to a few. If he withholds a happy life from, from, from God's people, you know, some, some people think, well, isn't that proof that God is not happy with me? No. It's like, just like being a, having a happy life and, and having possessions of riches. That doesn't prove that God approves of your life as well. This psalm keeps us from accepting that the present condition of things, whatever they are, whatever we're going through at the moment, as being final. And in spite of the kind of suffering described in this psalm that, that, that Heman was going through, the Bible teaches that there's godly order to the universe. Again, God doesn't just act randomly. Things do not happen in our life, and then God goes, Oh, man, how did that happen? Nothing slips through his fingers. God knows everything, and, and he knows the whys, he knows the ins and outs. That's our problem. We don't. But there's a godly order in God's kingdom. So again, we look forward to a balancing out of good and evil in our life. And here's the thing, to the final redemption, to our final redemption in the end. When all of these things, we learn in Revelation, no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. Those things will be wiped away once and for all. This psalmist here, Heman, like Job, doesn't give up. He finishes his prayer. Even though he's still totally in the dark. Even though he hasn't received any promise of any kind. And even though he hasn't gotten an answer yet, he continues his promise in the end here. The mocking that he heard and Job, and like many times us, does Job fear God for nothing? Is answered again. Like Job, the psalmist hasn't received any satisfactory answer for why his life is a mess. Why his life is in shambles. Why it's turned out as miserably as it has. He hasn't received an answer yet. But also like Job, he doesn't curse God and die. Instead, he's clinging to God. And man, that's exactly what we got to do. The, th- the worse things get, man, the harder, the tighter, the more we cling to God. The more we pray to him. Even to the very end. Now this is beyond human explanation. But you know what? Remember the scriptures, it's the full faith victory of the saints remember what John said in John 1 5 4 for whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith this is where our victory comes from our faith who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus Christ is the son of God you see and here's the whole it's not feeling that gives us the victory. It's not because I feel good and everything's going well that means I have the victory. Never judge your faith on the basis of what you see or what you feel. Never. Base it on the solid word of God. I may feel like I'm not saved, but what did John say? say? He says, you know this Because you have the Son of God. By this you know you are saved because you have the Son of God. I may say, I I may feel I don't have it. The Satan may tell me I don't have it. But what does the scripture say? 
This is how you know. Because the Bible says so. Because your feelings lie to you. And what you see isn't always really what it is. That's why we rely on the solid word of God. The author's name here allows us with some insight to see that his rejection only seemed like rejection. It only seems like Heman was being rejected by God. And his existence, like Job's, because again, Job questioned, why was I ever born? What was the purpose of my birth? Job's existence, Heman's existence, it wasn't a mistake. There was a divine plan much bigger than he knew. And it's the same in our life. Those things in your life that you've experienced, whether they were years ago or, or recently or, or maybe down the road, remember, it's a part of God's bigger plan for your life. And, and, and it's a place that's reserved just for and most carefully for him. As God has that place that is, that is reserved just for and most carefully for us. It's designed for us. So probably to his surprise, that is human surprise, this painful psalm of grief is included. Along with all the happier songs in the Bible. And remember that God wastes not one pain, one affliction, one drop of blood, one ounce of suffering from his saints. They're not forgotten by God. They're not missed by God. They don't go unseen by God. And to finish with Paul's wonderful words, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called, notice, according to his purpose. We're living according to his purpose. And that's what we need to get into our heads. I don't know what his purpose is. And many times I don't understand his purpose. But I do know what the scripture says. His will is the best thing for me. His purpose is the best thing for me. Though I may not think so and I may not enjoy it at the time. But it's going back to the word of God. I know this because God's word says it's true. My feelings might tell me no. My eyes might see something that tells me no. But God's word says, yes, Joe, this is what I have for you. And this is the best for you right now. And when we can submit to that and not question God and not kick against the goads, we'll be okay. It won't hurt so bad. Because I know, God, you allowed this for some reason beyond my human understanding. But as a part of your mysterious will and love in my life. Father, we come before you to thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your wonderful word, Lord. And Father, we do pray that you would help us to understand these things that we don't so often look at God. We look at the brighter side of the Christian life. We look at the great and wonderful comforting promises of God, but we never look at those things that 
maybe aren't as comforting or aren't as promising as we'd like them to be, but they're still promises from you, Lord. Father, help us to remember these promises because it's easy to rejoice when all is going well. But when things get tough, that's when it gets difficult for us to walk with you and and to think straight and not to blame you or, or, or mock you or get mad at you for anything, God. But to submit to the fact that, Lord, you're in control and that you love me too much to be unkind and you're too powerful to let anybody or anything change your purposes for my life. And so, God, help us to understand these things, Lord. And Father, we just thank you so much now, and we just uh, ask you to bless, bless our time. And Father, we thank you, and, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Since everybody here, we recognize.